We are going to look at this passage today. If you could stand as I read this passage, it's on page 809 in the Pew Bible as we continue to work our way through the book of Matthew. Today it's Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Again, on page 809 in the Pew Bible. Follow along as I read. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea by the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who are dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for speaking to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and for Matthew, who recorded these things, for the church who's gone before, before us and preserved this word that we could sit underneath it this morning. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word that you would meet each one of us where we're at today. We all gather this morning coming in from different places. Some of us have had the week on the mountaintop, some mundane in between, and some in the valley. So Lord, I pray that you would meet us here this morning through your word and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, words are powerful, are they not? It only takes two words to change the trajectory of a life. Two words together can change everything. By a show of hands, let me, let me see who in here has had their lives changed by the two words, I'm pregnant. My wife announced that to me, and that has radically changed my life three times. How many of you have received a phone call from somebody that you loved to hear the two words? It's cancer. Radically changes things. Some of you have stood right here in a wedding ceremony, and you've shared your vows with one another, and you've gotten to that point where you say, I do. Those are the only two words you want to hear in that moment, but they radically change everything, don't they? They're glorious words, and they change everything. 
Or if you've ever been to court convicted of a crime or potentially convicted of a crime, those two words, not guilty, and the way that that could change the rest of your life. Or if you're a Vikings fan, Vikings win. You never hear those two words, Vikings lose. (laughs) Missed field goal. Those are the two words that are important to Vikings fans. Think about how two words can start an entire movement. Me too. If you've been following news and social media for the last year, you know that the words me too has created a stir across our nation of movement of people banding together, encouraging one another, supporting one another. Let me tell you about two of the most important words that I've ever heard in my life that completely changed everything for me. It's when I was 19 years old, I was at tech school studying to be an electrician. I had my life planned, I had a great plan for my life. My older brother's an electrician, he, he's, I have a lot of respect for my older brother, I love him, I wanted his life. He's got a great life, he has a great job, he has all the things in life that I thought I wanted. So I thought, I'm going to follow my brother and do what my brother does. I'm going to go to tech school, learn to be an electrician, and then become an electrician, and then basically get all the things that my brother has, because he has all the things that I want. And so I was at tech school studying to be an electrician, and I was a Christian. I grew up in a great Christian home, godly parents who taught me the gospel and modeled it for me. But I was the kind of Christian who thought, I've got some good plans, I've got a good life agenda, and so God, why don't you follow me in my plans? Here's my plan, my life is mapped out, and God, get on board with me. And so I was at tech school, kind of planning my life, going my way, and wanting to be a good Christian, I was doing my daily devotions, right? At least trying, and I missed some days here and there, but I was trying to study my Bible more out of duty than out of love, because I wanted to be a good Christian. And I came across this passage that we just read Today And verse 19 stuck out to me, specifically two words in verse 19. And he, Jesus, said to them, follow me. Those two words changed everything about my life. It caused me to do a complete 180 in my life, from, from going to school to be an electrician, thinking I can plan my life, I can, I can dictate how my life goes, I can, I can decide how much money I want to make, what hours I work, I'm in control of my own life. And I read that, and I've read this verse a hundred times, but for whatever reason, in that moment in my life, those two words, Jesus' invitation to me, follow me, Andrew, follow me, changed everything about my life. I didn't know what that would look like at the time. I didn't know that that would lead to me being a pastor. I just knew that I had to reorient my life so that I followed Jesus, not inviting him to follow me. Jesus called out to me, Andrew, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And he's done that for each one of us, and he's doing that for us here and now. Here's the big idea of this text. I want to kind of put it into one sentence, and then we'll walk through the text and see this together. The big idea is that Jesus invites us to follow him in a life of purpose and eternal significance as we experience, declare, and demonstrate heaven on earth. Jesus invites us to follow him in a life of purpose and eternal significance as we experience, declare, and demonstrate heaven on earth. Now, before I unpack that statement and this passage, I, I want you to all know that in no way do I want you to hear this morning that if you are to be obedient to Jesus' invitation to follow him, that you need to have a career change, that you need to move across the world to be a missionary, that you need to become a pastor, that you need to do something that the world would say, well, that's, that's radical. I think God calls many people, Jesus' call to come and follow him is very ordinary for, very, for, for the majority of us. But it's a perspective shift 
his invitation for us to follow him does not result in all of us becoming missionaries or pastors. And oftentimes in the church, we idolize those people. We put those people on a pedestal. But Jesus' call for all of his followers is the same. We see this radical life change in the disciples here in this passage where they went from being fishers of men, or being fishers of fish, to being fishers of men. And he calls all of us to that. But he doesn't necessarily call all of you to change your career and your life trajectory. However, he calls all of us into this greater life. He calls you, no matter where you're at, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're an architect, whether you are a counselor, whatever you are, if you're a builder, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a working mom, he calls you into a life of radical submission to him where you live your life for him. He, he gives your life a deeper purpose and an eternal significance that you could never find, that you could never build on your own. And this is experienced as we declare and we demonstrate heaven on earth. So let's walk through this statement, walk through this text and see how this is true. Let's start by looking at Jesus' Jesus's invitation to follow him. In the book of Matthew, as we're tracking through this, a couple weeks ago we saw that, that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And then last week, Mark did a great job of looking at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in the first part of Matthew chapter 4. This is right before his public ministry. And now here in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus' public ministry is beginning. We're going to be looking at his ministry over the next coming months, looking at his commands, his invitations, what he calls us to do, how Jesus the King asks us to submit to him. And today we see this, this, this inauguration of his public ministry. Look at verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, so John was a prophet who preceded Jesus. He came before him. He pre- prepared the way for Jesus. John had been arrested because, because Herod was threatened by John and his proclamation of a coming king, a coming Messiah. So John is arrested, and then Jesus withdraws, and his ministry is about to begin. He's been tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. He's proved faithful. Where we prove unfaithful, Jesus proves faithful. And now he's getting ready to to proclaim the kingdom, to bring heaven to earth. Pick it up in verse 14. So that was what was spoken by the, Isaiah, by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. There's a, a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9 happening here. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a gray light. This, this Old Testament prophecy about people who, who didn't know the way, who couldn't see the truth, who couldn't see the light, saying, God has come to earth, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke all things into being, the eternal light that's brighter and more sufficient than the sun that's in the sky, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, God himself, has come to earth. Those walking in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. If you've ever felt alone, like you're in the dark, like you're dwelling in a land of death, know that Jesus has come to shine his light into the dark places. And so Jesus comes. This is his kingdom being set up. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so Jesus here is, Matthew here is setting up for us that's what, what is happening here is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the gospel. These are synonymous terms that Matthew uses throughout the book is being set up in and by Jesus. Here in this statement I said heaven on earth. The, the book of Matthew consistently wants us to know that Jesus is bringing a portion and a taste of heaven to earth. We have a lot of tears, a lot of suffering, a lot of dysfunction, a lot of sin that plagues us here now. Do we not? I mean, we say often at church that we're sinners by nature and choice. And I think we know that. We know our, our fleshly desires and the dysfunction of the world. That's the reality that we live in. But Matthew here is trying to remind us that in Jesus, there's actually tastes and breakthroughs of heaven here on earth. This isn't, heaven on earth is not our ultimate goal. There is an eternal heaven waiting for us in the future. The book of Revelation talks about it. It says that he will, he will return and be with his people. There will be no more suffering or tears or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new, says God, when he dwells with his people in physical form forever for eternity. That is the ultimate heavenly glory that we're waiting for. But Matthew here is intent on letting us know that a taste of that is coming to earth now. We don't have to wait to experience heaven until we die or Jesus returns. Jesus came the first time to begin to establish his kingdom, to begin to establish the kingdom of heaven, as verse 17 says. It's at hand. So where Jesus is ruling and reigning, where people are interacting with Jesus' church and with Jesus' body, the kingdom of heaven is there. Verse 23 says that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. As we go through the book of Matthew, we're going to hear a lot about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the gospel. This essentially is a taste of heaven, a taste of future glory, a taste of perfection here on earth. And Jesus invites us into that. He says, repent. Repentance is turning from what's wrong. It's if I'm going this way and I believe life is all that I see, life is all that's on the surface, life is all that is dysfunctional and broken, and I believe the way to, to fix the brokenness is in my own power, in my own strength, in man-made wisdom, in man-made wisdom, repentance is to say, nope, I can't fix it. It is broken. Nothing I can do can fix it. I turn from my faulty thinking. I turn from my faulty actions and I turn to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of life. Repentance is to turn. It's to turn from what is wrong and turn to what is right. So Jesus invites us to repent. Repent from wrong belief, repent from wrong action and turn to right belief and right action. For the kingdom of God, a taste of heaven is among you. Heaven has come to earth. And then the two-word invitation in verse 19, and he said to them, follow me. Jesus comes to bring a taste of heaven on earth so that we might experience the glorious goodness of God, and Jesus invites us into this life. Come and follow me. Put me first. Seek my ways. Do as I command. Follow my good lead. Give up your agenda. Give up your plans. Give up your strength and come and follow me. And it will make you fishers of men. 
This is what he invited the, the early disciples to do. When, what, what kind of intrigue did Jesus have that these men so immediately gave up their careers to follow him? Again, not everyone here is called to give up their careers, but we're called to hold everything with open hands. As I, as I look at this and see this, these men gave up their careers to follow Jesus. That's for some, it's not for all, but I think what we see in here is that we're called to live with open hands on everything. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, verse 18, verse 18, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That was their life. That was their job. They had everything set up. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He gave them this, this deeper purpose and this eternal significance to live for that they could not have found in merely being fishermen who fished for fish, who went out, caught their fish, cleaned their fish, sold their fish, cooked their fish, paid their bills. Jesus comes and he invites them into a deeper life where there's so much more purpose and eternal significance than, than purely getting through day by day paying the bills. And, and he does that for us. He invites us to follow him. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. What kind of call, what kind of intrigue must Jesus have had that they were willing to do that in an instant? And going on from there, verse 21, he saw two older brothers, two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left their boats and their father, and they followed him. Again, Jesus comes, and he invites these men to follow him, and they leave everything to do it. He gives them a chance to live life with this deep purpose, on mission, with, with eternal significance. And this has been true, folks, for the last 2,000 years, I mean, Jesus created this incredible movement that no one can snuff out where people continually give up everything to follow him. We have some of the first followers here, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And over the years, more and more people continue to follow him. From the first disciples to the missionaries of old. This is a missionary of old who has ties to our church. This is Hannah Hedstrom, who later in her life became Hannah Elfers, who married Per Elfers, who gave birth to Quinton Elfers, who pastored this church for 12 years. Elfers Hall, right below us, is named after him. Dave, El Dave and Patsy Elfers are sitting right here. Paul Elfers was in the first service. Hannah Headstrom, before she was Hannah Elfers, gave up everything to follow Jesus. As an 18-year-old, she was so intrigued and struck by the life of Jesus that she gave up everything to follow Jesus. She moved to China to make disciples of Jesus. Churches were planted. People met Jesus. The kingdom of heaven was at hand in China. And after six years of that, she got malaria and she began to lose her eyesight so she had to return home and this is a ship that she boarded to return home and it crashed into the rocks 40 other passengers died god spared her life in one suitcase she was hauled off to a pirate island 
God preserved her life, brought her back home where she got married, where she had Quint. And Quint had Dave. And Dave and Patsy have been in Africa making disciples of Jesus because they gave up everything to follow him. Clint and Christina, everything to follow him. A change of life, a change of plans. Linnea, who we sent to Guatemala this year, everything to follow him. Anna Shurik, who's not going to like that I'm doing this, but she's in the back in the sound booth. Put your hand up, Anna. Since I pointed you out, you might as well do it. This last week, she took the week off of work and out of her own pocket with her own money, she went down to Corpus Christi to help disaster relief with the Evangelical Free Church of America. She used her vacation time to go and serve people in need. And this continues, this has continued for 2,000 years where Jesus is the type of man with the type of mission, with this type of kingdom that people give up everything to follow him. Where people do things that the world says is foolish in order to follow him because he is a man worth following. Those are a few highlighted examples, but it's not just a Hannah Hedstrom. God's not calling all of you to China. God's calling some of you to be a stay-at-home mom who, who sacrifices her career and puts her career on hold to disciple her children. God's called some of you to be a working mom who does both. You, you work, you help pay the family bills, and you contribute to society through your work, and then you come home and you love on your kids. God's called some of you to singlehood so that you could extend your relational network and be available to people when married people with kids couldn't be available to them. God's called some of you into the workplace, into, into schools, into businesses, where you can follow Jesus by making fishers of men and women. See, wherever you're at in life, whatever God has called you to, it's not a mistake. He has you there, and Jesus consistently is saying, would you follow me? Would you live your life with a different purpose and an eternal significance so that you will go to work, so that you will go home, so that where you work, eat, sleep, and play, you would be there thinking, how do I, make, how do I fish for men and for women with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not here to use people and things for my own benefit. I'm here to serve people and things for God's glory, for the good of society, for the advancement of his gospel. And so Jesus invites us to follow him, to live our life with a greater purpose, with eternal significance that we can never create or build on our own. And we do this by experiencing the kingdom, right? So verse 17, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you believe that, church? I mean, the world, when we look, when we look at it through through fleshly eyes, not spiritual eyes, through fleshly circumstances, it does not seem like heaven has come to earth, does it? But Matthew is telling us that where Jesus is and that what Jesus came to do is to begin to establish the kingdom of heaven so that it could be experienced in part, not in full, but in part here and now. So that we would be able to taste and see that God is good and that those who interact with us would be able to see that God is good. As we experience the glory of God's heavenly reign and truth and goodness here and now on earth. That's what Jesus has invited us into. To experience the kingdom of heaven here and now. Not just to wait until he returns or calls us home. Although that's going to be a glorious day when we experience it to a different extent. 
to a much, glory, much more glorious extent. He's invited us to begin to taste and see that he is good. That, that though depression may exist, God is faithful and there is hope. That though physical pain may persist, I will be given a new body. And Jesus can preserve this one as he sees fit. That, that where finances are failing and inadequate, that, that God has promised that he will provide for his children the things that they need. See, that's the kingdom of heaven. Taste of God's glory given to us to experience here and now on earth. And so as we do that, we, we do this in a couple ways. We both declare and we demonstrate the kingdom of God. So Jesus is inviting us to follow him. In that following, he's giving us a, a better purpose to live with and an eternal significance as we experience his kingdom. And then we model him by both declaring and demonstrating his kingdom. This is what Jesus did. Look at verse 17 again. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus declared the kingdom of God. His ministry was a twofold ministry where he both declared and he demonstrated. He taught people truth and then he demonstrated truth. Jump down to verse 23. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He proclaimed, he declared the kingdom of the gospel. That heaven has come to earth. That Jesus is setting up outposts of heaven and where Jesus is, where he's proclaiming his goodness, where he's demonstrating his power. This is a taste of heaven. He went throughout the region teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming that, that God's kingdom reign and rule is now here on the earth to be experienced by mankind. And then he demonstrated this kingdom by healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed. Jesus declared that heaven was intersecting with earth, that the glorious goodness of God was now visible to be tasted and seen and experienced by all who would follow Jesus. And he also demonstrated the kingdom rule of God where, where he can take our sickness away, where he can mend our brokenness, where he can heal those who desperately need healing. This is the life that he invites us into, church. The Christian life, the life of discipleship, isn't just purely showing up at church, singing some songs, listening to a sermon, doing devotions, doing your Bible study. It's to be lived all for the glory of God. Regardless of where you live your life, regardless of your day in and day out, regardless of your relational sphere of influence, Jesus is inviting each one of us to follow him in experiencing the kingdom of heaven, in declaring the kingdom of heaven, and demonstrating the kingdom of heaven. So a couple questions for us today as we reflect on this. How can you develop stronger senses to experience heaven on earth? I think oftentimes, at least in the American church, we think that we've kind of compartmentalized our lives so that there's sacred activity and secular activity, right? 
And so we can experience the goodness of God or heaven on earth or the kingdom of God when we come to church and when we sing worship songs together or when we hear a sermon or, or when we're in a Bible study or when we're in our prayer closet or when we're doing our devotional life. And those are all good, right things that we ought to do. But I think, church, that if we're really to experience the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus told us was at hand, I think we need to increase our senses, our five senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, hearing. So, so we hear the gospel preached, we hear the gospel sing, sung, but, but when we eat food, when we, when we take communion, is it, a, is, a, is it a full sensory experience where we actually touch the communion elements and we think about Jesus' body? We taste it and we think about him being the bread of life. We, we drink the cup and we remind, we're reminded that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That when we sit with our friends and we eat our food and we drink our drinks, that we're reminded that Jesus did that with his disciples. That Jesus just wasn't always out fasting, reading his Bible, trying to memorize scripture. That Jesus was living life to the fullest with his followers. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they did amazing things for Jesus. Jesus invited them to come and follow him, but their life was not lived on their faces in devotion. I mean, that was part of what they did. Their life was lived face-to-face with Jesus, face-to-face with one another. They had meals together, and they experienced heaven on earth as they had meals together. They had fun together, And they experienced heaven on earth as they had fun together. Church, we need to to think through how can, and so for yourself, think this through. How How can you develop stronger senses to experience heaven on earth? When you go home and eat lunch, don't just eat lunch out of duty. Say, God, thank you for this food. I love it. It's amazing. This is a taste of heaven. Isn't that a much better way to eat? Like, we're going to have a feast in heaven with Jesus. We're told that in Revelation chapter 19. It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. The greatest feast you could ever imagine. The greatest wine you could ever taste. That's heaven. Matthew tells us that Jesus came to, to bring a taste of heaven to earth. So when you eat, do you eat as worship? When you play, do you play as worship? When you spend time with your family and friends... Do you have the senses to say this is a spiritual, heavenly experience? It's a gift from God that is given to those who would step into a life of discipleship, following Jesus, experiencing his goodness. Second question, how can you more convincingly declare heaven on earth? So if Jesus invites us to follow him, we see clearly in this passage that he declared the kingdom of heaven. Verse 17, he was preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So if we are invited to follow Jesus, that means we ought to do what he did. That means we ought to teach or declare the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of God, that heaven is on earth. There's elements of heaven here on earth. And so, church, how can you more convincingly declare the gospel? I said declare heaven on earth because I think that's a more provocative and interesting way for us to say it, but essentially it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. How can you more convincingly tell people about Jesus? 
How can you more convincingly tell a desperate world, a world that's desperate for goodness, a world that's desperate and hungry for satisfaction, that all of their satisfaction can be met in Jesus Christ? Because the kingdom of God has come, and the kingdom of God is available to us. Think through your relational sphere of influence. Do you hang out with more intellectual type who then you're going to need to study some apologetic stuff to more convincingly declare to them that Jesus is real and that there's a better life offered to them. You're going to need to know how to navigate some of their hard questions and to answer some of those hard questions and to pose some, some counterpoints. Is your relational sphere of influence filled more with like emotional people? They don't really want to reason, they want to feel. Well, then you're going to need to figure out how do you, how do you help them understand that the kingdom of God has the, offers the ultimate feeling, the ultimate experience, the ultimate emotions. It looks different for all of us. I mean, churches are really good at judging one another, right? Like, well, that's a feeling church and that's a thinking church. Well, we probably need both. And we should probably have some of both in all of our churches, right? Some thinking and some feeling. Because we more convincingly declare the goodness of God, the grace of God, the glory of God, the gospel of God, that heaven has come to earth when we intentionally think through how can I in a convincing way declare the gospel? How can I in a convincing way preach the gospel? That doesn't mean you have to stand in front of a crowd and preach it. How can you just teach your coworker things about Jesus? Parents, how can you teach your kids truths about Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. He invites us to follow him, to do what he did. He taught the gospel. We are called to follow him, to do what he did, and to teach the gospel. So think through yourself, for yourself. How can you grow in that? How can you more convincingly declare the kingdom of God is at hand? Third question, how can you more compassionately demonstrate heaven on earth? The, the opposite side of the same coin. Or if you think about a bike, if you're riding a bike, you need, you need one handlebar with two handles, right? If you have one handle, your hand on one handle, and you lean this way, what's going to happen? You're going to go in circles, right? So if you're all about declaring and not about demonstrating, you're going to go around in circles. If you're all about demonstrating God's goodness but never speaking Jesus' name, you're going to go around in circles, Declaring and demonstrating are like the two handlebars on a bike that keep you going straight. We need to both speak about Jesus, his glory, his grace, his goodness, but we also have to demonstrate with compassion that Jesus has come to establish a new kingdom. Look at what Jesus does. He heals every disease and every affliction among the people. What if God actually wanted to heal some people, some sick people, some hurting people, some broken people through us, his people? I mean, have you, have you asked? We could ask. And God does his thing, his will, his way. And Jesus taught us how to pray, Lord, your will be done, not mine. But this passage is teaching us that Jesus came to establish the kingdom, to start growing the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And that's done through proclamation, through declaring, and also through demonstration. So church, how can you more compassionately in your sphere of influence demonstrate the gospel? Does that mean you need to give some money to your hurting neighbor, to your under-resourced neighbor? Does that mean you need to pray for their back to be healed? Trusting that Jesus can do it, whether he does or not, is up to him. 
but we need to demonstrate with compassion that Jesus cares for the people of this earth. And then lastly, how can you more immediately and consistently respond to Jesus' invitation, follow me? He's invited all of us to follow him. He came and he invited Peter and James and John and Andrew and they left everything immediately. It says that multiple times in this passage. And later on, Matthew gives the account of when Jesus called him and he left immediately. It says, immediately, verse 20, they left their nets and followed him. Verse 22, immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. How can, how can you Build a life centered around Jesus where you're more willing to act at his call. When he says, follow me today and actually drive down this road and pray for this neighbor. Or, or take the long way today and pray for that hurting, broken neighborhood in your city rather than the easy way to your job. Or get out of your car at the gas station and go into the gas station and pay for your gas there so that you can look the person at the counter in the face and encourage them in that day rather than doing the convenient thing and swiping your card. How, how can we more immediately and consistently respond to Jesus's, yes, big call, give up everything, follow me, move across the world to make disciples if that's it, or if it's just the daily steps of obedience? How can we more immediately and consistently respond to his invitation. Don't buy a latte every day. Instead, give $25 a month to a missionary. Can we, can we follow Jesus in, those, in that type of calling? Actually, if you buy a latte every day, you're going to be able to give, and give that up, you'll be able to give far more than $25 a month to a missionary. It's about $100 a month. If, if you work Monday through Friday, you buy a latte every morning on your way to work, that's $25 a week, you could, give, you could give that up, brew coffee at home, and give us some money to some missionaries. See how we can live a radical life without even moving across the world? And this is how Jesus calls us to follow him, to, to be ready. Now, God is so gracious, church. Some of you have been dragging your feet. All of us have drug our feet at one point in time or another. All of us will drag our feet in following Jesus. The disciples did this. I love this passage. The four of them, immediately they give up everything and follow Jesus. But as we track through the book of Matthew, we're going to see that, that they backpedaled often. And they had this immediate reaction to come and follow Jesus, to give up everything. But as times got hard, as things looked out of their control and out of their hands, they often backpedaled. They often doubted. So this question, I think it's a good one. How can you move, how can we more immediately and consistently follow Jesus? I think we need to be ready to immediately follow Jesus and to, to be quick to listen and to follow. But when we're not, God is gracious. Amen? God is so gracious, so kind, so patient, so loving that when we drag our feet, when we dilly-dally, when we are not immediate to his call to follow him, he continues to persist and to invite and to welcome us in to experiencing this incredible life. And how can we more consistently follow him? I mean, maybe some of you have never responded to the initial invitation that Jesus has given, come and follow me. I encourage you to do that here now today. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you about what that looks like, what that means. 
The invitation is there for all of us to follow Jesus. He will give us a greater life with more purpose. But if you've already done that, how do you consistently, day in and day out, continue to follow him? It wasn't a one-time thing that you did. It's a daily decision to follow Jesus, to experience all that he has for us, for his glory, for the good of those we interact with, and for the advancement of his gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for setting up the kingdom of heaven here on earth. For this truth that you spoke, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You declared that, you demonstrated that, so God, I pray that you would continue to do that in us, that you would continue to declare the truth about your kingdom, that you would continue to demonstrate the power of your kingdom. Thank you for the invitation. You've invited all of us. You've built a team of followers who are unlikely and incapable. I thank you for calling us to follow you and for giving us a greater purpose and an eternal significance. Pray now that as we remember the gospel, that you would stir our hearts with a greater affection for you. In Jesus' name, amen.